This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. As parts of the world slide into hellish landscapes, my studio lost contact with the world. The nearby South Okanagan fire burned through the fiber optic cable, supplying internet and television to a string of small towns east of Anarchist Mountain. We were cut off for six days, unplanned and unplugged. Maybe I needed that. Summer's holiday time, or it used to be, and sure I could use a mental health break. The five-week extreme heat wave and no significant rain since April just waits for a bolt of lightning, car accident, or stupid humans to erupt in massive firestorms roaring across forests, ranches, and homes, licking at the edges of small towns, and burning some of them down to a litter of concrete blocks and twisted metal. The last Radio EcoShock show was uploaded to the networks through my wife's cell phone after driving half an hour closer to the fire zone, in fact, to the evacuation alert border. But the show must go on. Obviously, the rest of the world is not on fire like the west coast of North America. Climate change is like that old story of the blind man and the elephant. Each reports on the part of the animal they encounter. This past week, our European listeners want to know more about flooding and the crazy extreme rainfall events striking again and again. A few London tube stations filled up, of course, but streets of floating cars is unusual even there. The rainy British capital expects lots of rain, but not that much, that fast. Judging from just news footage, it looks like older cities in northern Europe were the most severely damaged by flooding. Some were established in the Middle Ages. In Belgium and Germany, scores of towns flooded, and the worst in Germany killed at least 130 people, with dozens more still missing. Salzburg, Austria, got extreme rainfall and strange floods. It went into Poland and rained and rained and flooded. Extreme rainfall events are popping up all over the world. When more than a year's worth of rain flooded the holy city of Mecca this spring, some worshippers were thrilled seeing the waters as a sign of God's forgiveness. Don't forget, in July, New York City experienced floods, including in the subway system. So did Detroit. It's hard to classify the floods in Pakistan's capital, Islamabad, and the key Indian city of Mumbai. They, too, flooded out with near-record rains. But that came along with the annual monsoons, the storms that bring essential rains to India and Pakistan. Was this just a strong monsoon? It may take some years for science to figure that out. The world's largest refugee camp in Bangladesh flooded too. Those poor people. Flash floods killed hundreds of people in the last week of July in Afghanistan, in the desert. Some Chinese officials and media felt the same about the floods in Hainan province, though. You probably saw a video of commuters up to their necks in water in subway cars. A year's worth of rain fell on that city of Zhenzhou in 72 hours. The authorities say the Yellow River always floods. So maybe that was not caused by climate change. My point is the weather is going more and more into extremes, and that is exactly what has been predicted for years on this show by scientist after scientist. For the West, it's drought and fire. Others get extreme rain or snow. We know the atmosphere holds 7% more water vapor for every degree of warming. In the great global cycle, 
more water gets sucked out of the hot lands, making them drier, and falls elsewhere. Most of it goes into the ocean, which is changing marine chemistry, adding a freshwater layer near the surface. We don't know the impact of that, but the rest has to come down somewhere on land. Between the two sides of extreme weather, well, they are related in multiple ways. Obviously, both are driven by a hotter planet. Whether you get heat and fire or water seems to depend on a couple of key factors. The main one, where has the famous jet stream stalled? In the northern hemisphere, the jet stream used to reliably flow fairly straight and steady across the continents from west to east. The airliners could use it. That's why they call it the jet stream. Scientists tell us the speed of the jet stream is determined by the temperature difference between the equator and the poles. Now that the Arctic is up to 18 degrees C hotter than normal, much of the time, there is less difference, and thus less power to the jet stream. As a consequence, the jet stream now has large waves running from north to south and back up again. These waves can park over part of a continent and hold whatever weather is below. A stalled wave just caused a heat dome over western North America that lasted weeks, resulting in record heat, drought, and fires. A recent map from NASA shows there were five heat waves active in the Northern Hemisphere in late June and in early July. That is unusual, to say the least. Number one is over the center of North America, as you might suspect. The second straddles from Greenland across the ocean to Iceland and to northern Scotland. Number three hovers over the central North Siberia but stretches down into the Middle East. And the fourth is over far eastern Siberia, and that may explain why it has been a sweltering 34 degrees C during the Olympic Games in Japan. And number five is over Alaska and Canada's Yukon. Of course, these are always changing, and it will change by the time you hear this. And there are a few pockets of cold in between them. Meanwhile, there have been freak snowstorms in Brazil, like São Francisco de Paula, a region well north of Uruguay. It doesn't snow there. And it snowed in the desert of South Africa, where lions left footprints in the snow. That is highly unusual weather. In a conversation on this show, I once asked Paul Beckwith why Arctic cold was being pushed down into the States and Europe as the Arctic warmed. He suspects Earth has a certain quantity of heat and cold at any time, so the cold has to go somewhere. That's a reasonable possibility. Another connection between Western fires and European floods is possible. We need to know a lot more about wildfire smoke. Outside my studio, I can no longer see the nearby hill. Thick smoke is rolling in from wildfires further west and from Washington State. You can find smoke maps from space showing the smoke billowing across all of North America. New York City had off-the-charts dangerous air quality and low visibility for several days because of the fires out west. More people die when that happens. That's just medical statistics. You can see it. Smoking is bad for your lungs, whether it comes from cigarettes or car exhaust or forest fires. There is toxic smoke in forest fires. Some smoke rises in pyrocumulus clouds, giant billowing clouds that you can see from a long way away, and it's caused by the intense fire itself. That blows around the northern hemisphere. It doesn't reach the southern hemisphere, experts say. And we have a situation with at least 7% more water vapor in the atmosphere. 
To have rain or snow, that vapor needs to condense on nuclei of particles, some other matter, like dust or smoke. It seems common sense that smoke from vast wildfires in one part of the world might seed clouds over Europe and other places, stimulating or at least making possible more extreme rainfall events, say in Belgium or Germany. So who owns the rain, really? Some humans are trying to own it. The United Arab Emirates claims their national cloud seeding system caused torrential rains there, out of season and with heat near 50 degrees C. As reported July 27, 2021, by two good reporters, China is testing their weather modification drone aircraft called Ganlin-1. China hopes to produce artificial rains over 60% of the country by 2025. It's called geoengineering. This time it hopes to take advantage of the extra water in the atmosphere provided by climate change. China's neighbors are worried about this. Nobody knows what impacts a commandeering rain will have on nature's animals and plants, not to mention cloud formation and weather in other countries. Rain control is already starting to happen. Now, you may have heard about a slight drop in emissions in some countries due to COVID-19 lockdowns. A new study by the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research finds the wildfire smoke had a greater impact on global warming in 2020 than the pandemic did. Paradoxically, the COVID lockdowns actually warmed the planet a little, they say, rather than cooling it. With fewer cars on the road, fewer planes in the air, less industry operating, the skies became clearer. That lets in more direct sunlight to heat the surface. That makes it hotter. But that impact was less than what wildfires did. It is all very strange, and it's a bit difficult to understand. We usually think fires cool the planet, and they can, in the short term. The scientists found, quoting their press release, the Australian bushfires cooled the southern hemisphere to such an extent that they lowered Earth's average surface temperatures. This is because sulfates and other smoke particles interact with clouds to make their droplets smaller and reflect more incoming solar radiation back to space reducing the absorption of sunlight at the surface, end quote. And so the smoke cools what is below. Scientist John Fasulo also wonders if wildfire smoke could impact the giant weather-making ocean currents El Nino and La Nina. After smoke from the Australian wildfires of 2019, scientists tracked tropical thunderstorms displaced further north than usual. There is so much we do not know. In a way, the wildfire smoke is similar to the impact of volcano eruptions and to the particles geoengineers hope to release trying to cool the planet. Would those experiments also displace weather systems and life-giving rain? We don't know. Meanwhile, power systems all over the world are under stress due to climate change. Extremely hot temperatures and drought have led to blackouts in cities across the Middle East from Khuzestan through Tehran. That means that no air conditioning or fans for millions of people as heat pushes towards 50 degrees C, which is 122 degrees Fahrenheit. California has repeatedly asked customers and industries to reduce their power consumption by about 25% or face rolling blackouts. 
As before, some power companies had to shut down their grid system proactively to prevent causing more deadly fires. In other places, there is not enough water behind dams to run electric generating stations. You have to see a photo of what was Lake Oroville, California, a big lake. Now it is a rock gulch. Lost cars and bodies have emerged out of the bottoms of lakes and rivers across the West. Here is a fact new to me. Wildfire smoke can also reduce power on the electric grid. An article in the Los Angeles Times July 12th says, A power line that's part of the California-Oregon intertie was knocked out by the fire. The heavy smoke acted as a conductor, interfering with the electric current. End quote. There's so much more I've got to find out about that. The state of California suddenly had to scramble for 4,000 megawatts more imported energy to replace the smoke loss. Who knew? A journal article from scientists in Nevada found wildfire smoke can also increase susceptibility to COVID-19. The numbers from Reno, Nevada show this increase when the air is smoky. Many municipalities have declared water emergencies in the West. Residents are expected to let their lawns die to preserve enough drinking water. I expect the new and final stage soon where even watering a garden is forbidden with a fine if you do. However, we captured 500 gallons of rainwater from our roof back in April, so we can at least keep our fruit trees and key food gardens alive until fall, I think. Radio EcoShock. Back at my post on the science beat, a new study in the geophysical research letters predicted intense storms and floods in Europe. It was published just in July 16th, right as the floods hit. The title is Quasi-Stationary Intense Rainstorms Spread Across Europe Under Climate Change. Now that I am back online, I'm trying to reach the authors for an interview. By my reading, scientists from Newcastle University and the UK Met Office return to the phenomenon of a slower-moving jet stream. The slow-moving storms dump more rain. Those extreme rainfall events are expected to be, quote, 14 times more frequent across land by the end of the century, end quote. Not only is there more water up there to fall, but it will tend to accumulate in slow-moving storms a sure recipe for more floods. There's another good study out on extreme rains just out, that is Nature Communications, 6th of July. Again, I hope to get authors on to discuss this. The reality of slow-moving extreme rain events has not really reached the public as a major danger from climate change. You think about climate change, you think about heat, you think about fires, what we've got out west, but you've got to remember rising seas, for one thing, but also extreme rainfall events. We can adapt up to a point with better city design and landscape hydrology. Maybe check out the work of Mikhail Kravchik and the Rain for Climate Plan. Rain for Climate Plan. Is your city and home ready for extreme rainfall or snowfall? Is your local government planning for climate adaptation? Ask them. Please ask them. Well, that's enough from me this week. It is 38 degrees C, just over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, outside my studio right now. It is that hot, even covered with a blanket of wildfire smoke. 
I am safe and I am healthy. So is my family for now. I'm really pleased for the support from listeners. Thank you. I am motivated to give my all to prevent this world from getting any hotter than this. And I hope you are too. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Let's get the big picture from one of my favorite wildfire experts. Dr. Michael Flanagan is a professor at the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta. He's the senior research scientist at the Canadian Forest Service. His PhD is from Cambridge, and he's trained in meteorology. Flanagan is editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Wildfire and part of the U.S. Assessment on Global Change. Mike is a leader in the newly formed Western Partnership for Fire Science. We're going to hear excerpts from my recording of Mike Flanagan's presentation at Forest Fires in Canada, Impacts of Climate Change and Fire Smoke, delivered Sunday morning, February 19th, 2012, in a special workshop at the American Academy for the Advancement of Science in Vancouver. So what do we know about fire on the landscape across the globe? Well, about, and I do say about 350 to 450 million hectares burns every year. And for context, that's the size of India. We have no clue as to how many fire starts there are in the globe, but we guess that about humans are responsible for 90% of them. The largest area burns are in grasslands and savannas. In many ecosystems, fire is a necessary component. You'd see lots of fire in Africa, Australia, and Southeast Asia, and less so in uh, Siberia and uh, Canada, United States, and a fair bit of fire in the Amazon as well. So let's talk about people and fire. It's a two-way street. Humans impact fire, uh, land use change, clearing, abandonment, building cities. We try to manage fire. Some places it's a truly is fire suppression. Some uh, human-caused ignitions are accidental, but some are deliberate arson fires, and arson fires seems to be on the rise. And of course, the flip side is fire impacts humans. Loss of life, infrastructure, evacuations, air quality, which we'll hear a fair bit about, water quality, fire suppression costs, indirect effects like climate change, and ecological aspects like biodiversity. Now, fire management globally, there's a wide range from the most sophisticated computer-aided decision support, helicopters, to using brooms for fire management. So a wide range of activities. Many billions of dollars are spent. In Canada, we're averaging about $800 million a year, though this year, or 2011, we went over a billion. The United States is several billion. California alone usually spends a billion or more. Fire management is replacing fire suppression in some regions. It's a balancing act between protection of human life and values at risk and protecting the environment and the ecology. So this is how I view the world of forest fires or wildland fires. There's four key factors. And really what I'm looking at is not an individual fire, but looking at fire over a landscape over a period of time, say a couple of weeks to a month to a season. And these ingredients or factors are fuel, how much fuel, how moist it is, how it is structured. If it's a forest, does it have ladder fuels that's understored to carry the fire from the surface to the crowns? You can't have a fire if you don't have ignition. And there's two primary types, human and lightning. And, of course, there's weather. And I unabashedly think that weather is the most important factor. Things like temperature, precipitation, atmospheric moisture, uh, upper conditions, 
blocking ridge or omega blocks, solar radiation, and there's climate patterns like ENSO, Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation also influences fire activities. And last, the first three are natural factors and would operate if there was no people on the landscape. The last one are people, but we are on the landscape and we fragment and we manage fire, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what's interesting here is that weather is a component of the first three in that fuel moisture is a critical consideration and fuel moisture is directly controlled by the weather. Also, lightning, one of the ignition factors, is also controlled by the weather and weather is its own factor. So in terms of options, if these are the things that are driving fire, what can we control? Well, we can't really control the weather. So the only options are fuel and human-caused ignitions. So we should be spending more time on prevention, education, restricted fire zones, reduce or eliminate industrial activity during periods of high fire danger. And we can modify the fuel. And programs like FireWise, FireSmart already doing that. Fuel breaks, changing the fuel load, fuel type at the landscape level, which probably isn't too effective or near areas of high value like communities. So now we're going to talk about climate change. And the GCMs predict temperature changes of 1.4 to 5.8 degrees Celsius by 2100. Greatest increases at high latitudes over land in winter and spring, though over the Arctic Ocean, because the the ice may be seasonal by mid-century, there will be significant increases in temperature over the Arctic Ocean. Projected increases in extreme weather, heat waves, droughts, floods, windstorms, ice storms, etc., and the two graphs here, one is showing observed temperature, and this is from a while ago. It just shows temperature change per decade, and the warmer yellows and oranges are warming and the blues are cooling. And you see a pattern that not everywhere is warming, but over land, northern areas. And I compare that with projection from the Canadian model for 2050, and you see a somewhat similar pattern to what's happening. And once again, it's warming in some places, significant warming over the Arctic Ocean because the ice is probably seasonal now. But there are areas where there's no change or cooling, and that's due to ocean currents. So a big part for fire is variability. And it's because fire is usually a result of extreme. Just a few critical days are responsible for most of the area burned. Sometimes you have fire and then you have a flood because you have increased runoff. Other parts of the world, you have floods and then you have fire, like Australia, the central dry area. You have flooding, which increases production of vegetation, which then dries out in the next dry spell and then burns. And things like wind. The projections are, for most regions, the average wind speed is not going to change a great deal, but we expect to see high, more extreme high wind speeds in the future. And those are the days when the fires spread. And those are the days we have to watch for. So if the extremes are increasing, even though the average isn't, we still have a big problem. And by 2100, it's a much warmer world, according to this simulation. Temperatures of 5, 6 degrees warming, which is a very significant warming. Uh, You do see areas, once again, of a little change or perhaps even a little bit of cooling, southern oceans and near Labrador. But it is a much warmer world if these models are anywhere close to reality. This is work done by Nathan Gillette uh, back in 2004, and he looked at area burned in Western Canada. And is it changing, increasing? In that paper, we suggest that the increase in area burned we've seen in Canada, which has been a doubling already, is due to human-caused climate change. So one of the key factors in this increase in fire 
that we've seen already in Canada and in other parts of the globe, and what we expect to see in the future is because of increased temperature. And, you know, I get asked, well, why is temperature so important? Well, there's three reasons. And the first is that increased temperature drives evapotranspiration, which drives how dry the fuels will be. Generally, the fuels are going to be drier, so it's easier for fires to start and spread. The exception is if there's an increase in precipitation, and for every degree of warming, you need about a 10% increase in precipitation to keep the fuel moisture approximately the same. So, and most of the models do not suggest that kind of increase in precipitation, so the fuels are drier. Second, temperature has a strong positive correlation with lightning, so the warmer it is, the more lightning we have, and the more fire starts. Though I need to do some more literature search to see how strong that correlation is. Third, the warmer it is, the longer the fire season, and this is particularly important at northern latitudes. The graph shows 2011 annual surface temperature across the globe, 2011 was the ninth warmest year, even though there was a La Nina for most of the year. And nine of the ten warmest years on record have been this century. 1998 was the exception, and that was a strong El Nino year. There's a number of papers that talk about temperature and fire, and I cite the paper by Parisian et al. in Ecological Applications, published last year. Now, this is work that's been done in Canada, and this just showed projections of area burned, and once again, the key variable was temperature and fuel moisture, and it showed about a doubling of area burned in Canada for a three times C2, three times CO2 scenarios or equivalents by the Canadian and Hadley model. The, in the eastern Canada, they're very similar. In the western Canada, there are some uh, divergences. It's because the Canadian model is a little cooler and wetter than, the, than that Hadley run. So this is work by Mike Balshi and others. And he used a, a Mars approach and using A2, B2 or for Western Canada, Alaska. And depending on which scenario and what, what time, mid-century, late century, we're looking at uh, two and a half to five and a half times increase in area burned. So that's significantly more than the earlier one, which was a doubling. So there was a literature review done a few years ago looking at global fire and climate change and the majority of the studies suggest area burned increases, though there was very few global studies at that time. Fire and currents increases, fire seas increases. The message was more mixed with respect to fire intensity and fire severity. And one example of fire occurrence was published by Mike Watton and others looking at changes in fire occurrence in Canada caused by lightning and human caused. And it's done by eco-region provincial ecoregion, and that's human-caused 2090, and that's lightning-caused. And we see some areas of no change, but we do see significant areas of increases. They did not inc change the lightning frequency. The increases in lightning-caused fires is due to drier fuels. So this gets me to the point where the most recent work I've done, it was just completed last, last Monday, and we're using the Canadian Forest Fire Danger Range System, which is used across Canada and many parts of the world. Many of the global products use the Canadian system. We used something called a cumulative DSR to determine the severity of the fire season. The DSR is a function of the fire weather index, which is a measure of the intensity of the fire, and it provides a measure of how difficult it is to suppress a fire. So what I'm driving at here is if fire increases in the future like we expect, how much will this affect fire management capabilities? And I also looked at changes in fire season length. So for the baseline observed data, used NSEP reanalysis data 
to determine the Canadian FWI system, including the DSR for 71 to 2000, three emission scenarios, the standard IPCC 3, A1B, A2, B1 for three GCMs, Canadian, Hadley, and French. Uh, we superimposed anomalies from the future decade over the baseline and calculated a ratio. And we also calculated change in fire season light. On the picture here, this is a, a MOAS picture showing fires in Quebec driving smoke down into the eastern seaboard, New York, Washington. In Canada, we export hockey players, cold fronts, and now we export smoke. You are listening to a presentation by Dr. Mike Flanagan, one of Canada's top fire experts. This is Radio EcoShock with a recording from the 2012 meeting of the AAAS. And you can see most of the globe, especially in the north, this is mid-century, is a significant increase. Now, many of these increases we're showing a doubling to tripling of DSR, which is a very significant increase. So if I go ahead to layer century, this is still a B1 scenario, and I'll toggle back and forth so you can see that it is getting worse as, this, as the century progresses, and much more agreement in North America as we move along. The Canadian was the coolest model and the wettest model. The, the other two models, the French and the Hadley, were in much closer agreement than the Canadian model. It's interesting that Africa isn't doing a great deal in the B1 scenario. So let's move to A1B. This is mid-century, same sort of uh, legend. If all three agree increases, it's the red. But what you do note is that there's very little areas of decrease. There are some areas of no change, but mostly it's increases. It's mostly the northern hemisphere, though you do see increases in Australia and parts of South America. So that's mid-century. End of the century, same sort of pattern as the B1 scenario, is that end of century is much worse. You can see Europe spreads to the Iberian Peninsula and more of South America. And let's move on to the A2 scenario, mid-century, same legend, end of century, mid-century, end of century, mid-century. And it's all three scenarios are have very similar agreement that cumulative DSR is going to increase significantly. So I had a manager, and he always would say when I published something or I had new exciting results, he'd say, so what? Okay. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. We're going to hear excerpts from my recording of Mike Flanagan's presentation at Forest Fires in Canada, Impacts of Climate Change and Fire Smoke, delivered Sunday morning, February 19, 2012, in a special workshop at the American Academy for the Advancement of Science. In So here's the so what. All right? And just, to, just for your information, this is a Landsat picture of Slave Lake, and that's part of the community, and you can see the two fingers of the fire, and this is the one that burnt into town. Modern fire management is challenging today. We, we just have to look. Canada, United States, and Australia are probably the leaders in the world. And we've been struggling in California, in Texas. Last year, over $5 billion, number of people died. We had problems in Alberta last year. Australia had serious issues 2009. There's been problems in Russia 2010, problems in the Mediterranean. And some of these are occurring in areas where we have the best fire management organizations in the world. But you can't put out all the fires all the time. They're, they're very efficient, uh, 95 to 99% of the fires they do put out, but the ones that do get away cause all the damage. And it's 
So in the future, if the intensity of the fires increase, it means you cannot attack the front of the fire because it's not safe for humans to be in front of it. Also, if it gets too intense, aircraft is not effective. So what I'm saying is if these fires become more intense, fire management will be less effective, even for modern fire management agencies. And less sophisticated fire management agencies will be completely overwhelmed. I also looked at fire season length. It was a simple temperature-based index. And you can see that kind of the modeled area in much of the equatorial tropical zones means that it's basically all year fire season in terms of temperature already. So the biggest increases are the northern hemisphere. And it's the same sort of pattern as I showed before. Three scenarios. This is the B1 for the three models. If they all agree, it's red. So the same sort of legend. And you can see the northern hemisphere fire season should increase. Most of the increases were around 20 days. So it's a significant lengthening of fire season. That's mid-century, end of century. Not much change. Though most of the fire season changes will, will have happened by mid-century. This is A1B, same sort of pattern. And here's A2, same sort of pattern. Very consistent. We're going to have longer fire seasons, which isn't much of a surprise. Now, I'd like to shift gears and just talk about carbon for a couple of minutes, if I may. Fire in Canada plays a major role to determine whether our ecosystem or our forest is a source or a sink. In recent years, our forests have been a source of carbon due to things like mountain pine beetle and fire activity. And there's kind of three ways fire and carbon interact. First is through combustion, flaming and smoldering combustion, Greenhouse gases, including carbon, are released to the atmosphere. Decomposition. After fire goes through, there's a lot of dead organic material. This decomposes and releases carbon. And the third aspect is that many of the fires occur, in the, at least in the forest, in semi-mature to mature stands. And these are stand-renewing fires, so there's a new crop of vegetation which has a completely different carbon dynamics. It's a much better sink as it grows up. Generally, after fire... It's a carbon source for anywhere from 2 to 15 years, and after that, it becomes a carbon sink again. So I do want to talk about peat. There's about 700 petagrams of carbon stored in the circumboreal forest. This is Siberia and Canada, Alaska, and it's about a third of the terrestrial carbon. And much of this is legacy carbon. It's been accumulating over thousands of years. Now, climate change will mean the thawing of permafrost, and there'll be more droughts, and peat fires will become more common. And peat fires can release significant amounts of greenhouse gases. Published work from Indonesia suggested that the fires in 1997 released 20 to 40% of global fossil fuel emissions, or the equivalent. Our peat reserves in the circumboreal dwarf anything in Indonesia, and peat fires can be hard to put out. They can burn right through winter, and then start up again next spring. So it's a very serious issue that this could be a positive feedback. So the positive feedback is fossil fuels lead to warmer temperatures, more fire, and more fire leads to more greenhouse gases. Now, some people may argue that there's been warmer periods in the past, and you know this has happened before. And to a degree, that is true. But the past is not an analog because the rapidity of the warming may make these peatland reserves extremely vulnerable unlike the past. Options, adaptations, we have updated enhanced fire danger rating systems, and we're working on that in Canada already. Global early warning systems, we're also working on that already. Regional cooperations, we have to learn to share resources. We already are doing this in the developed countries, 
but we have to do it in the developing countries. Training and education, FireWise, FireSmart program, and we have to enforce policies rather than just uh, giving them lip service. So, in summary, fire and weather are strongly linked. A warmer world will have more fire. Changes in wildland fires may be the greatest early impact of climate change on forests and wildlands. Traditional approaches to fire management may no longer be viable, and there's a potential for significant positive feedback through peat fires and the need for international cooperation. Thank you. That was Mike Flanagan speaking on wildfires and climate change at the special session of the American Academy for the Advancement of Science in February 2012. You can download my Radio Ecoshock interview with Mike Flanagan in the May 2011 program titled Flood, Fire and Wind, Climate Shift. That's at ecoshock.org. It's a 13-minute interview. A best of Radio Ecoshock replay. Here is Mike Brower addressing a special session of the American Academy in February 2012. I'm going to talk about health impacts of uh, fire smoke. Most people are thinking about fires and health actually think about property damage, direct influences of, of the fires themselves. But there are, is now quite a bit of evidence of impacts of smoke. And really, when we actually think about air pollution episodes uh, in developed countries, we have done a pretty good job of dealing with um, extremes in air pollution in urban areas due to industrial emissions, traffic-related emissions. We still have sort of chronic exposure to pollutants from those sources. But uh, really, one of the major, if not the major source of episodes of air pollution in um, developed countries are fire smoke. So in a location that's impacted by a fire smoke, that's almost certainly going to be the highest concentration so that population will experience that year. So just a little bit of background to put this uh, in perspective. What do we know about air pollution and health? And specifically, I'm going to focus mostly on airborne particulate matter. This is the heart of the air pollution that we have the strongest associations with population health impacts. From studies that have been done now in over 400 cities in the world, we know that on days with the worst air pollution, more people die. So daily changes lead to more deaths. It's important to consider air pollution for any one individual. The individual risk is very small. But what makes it important from a public health perspective is that everybody is exposed. So the the population impact can be very large. So everybody always asks me, you know, can you see a patient, you know, can you see air pollution disease? No, we can't. It's a contributing risk factor. But when we do these statistical associations, we can actually estimate the population impact. And you can contrast that with something like smoking, where we know the risk to an individual is very large. But fortunately, in a country like Canada, actually, the population exposure uh, to smoke, the proportion of the population that smokes is rather low and, and decreasing. That's a good thing. We also know that in more polluted areas, people die earlier than in less polluted areas. And the evidence base for that is somewhat smaller. We don't have 400 studies, but we have in the hundreds and hundred or so studies like that. This figure here is just to illustrate if we're talking about something like death, which is very easy to understand, that's really sort of a tip of the iceberg phenomenon. The proportion of the population that may experience death as a result of air pollution, whether that's chronic exposure or an episode situation, is rather small. But underlying that are a whole other series 
of health impacts that actually affect a greater proportion of the population. And in some cases, these actually add up to sort of contribute to, to earlier death. So I'm actually going to be focusing on sort of two indicators that we've primarily used uh, in our forest fire smoke work, and that will be a visit to a general practitioner and medication use. So these are things that sort of affect a somewhat larger proportion of the population, therefore are easier to detect. And that's important when we talk about forest fires because often they don't actually impact large urban areas. So in order to get the statistical power to actually detect these sort of risks of air pollution exposure, we need large populations or sort of long time series of data in order to identify something like a death. Forest fires sometimes impact smaller communities, rural areas, and so we like some kind of an indicator that we're more likely to, to see a signal. So what do we actually know about fire smoke? Um, this is just a quote from a review um, a number of us did several years ago, which was actually looking at sort of biomass smoke in general, whether it was burning in fires, burning from agricultural, land clearing, from actually burning wood for heating or cooking. And, and when we sort of looked at all the evidence, basically we see sort of a number of respiratory outcomes, symptoms, hospital admissions, emergency room visits, respiratory disease, some clinical measures like decreased lung function, very consistent associations uh, with uh, increased levels of particulate matter in the air. And uh, a number of studies suggest that asthmatics are a particularly susceptible subpopulation with respect to, to smoke exposure. Here's just one example of study that we did focusing uh, on the 2003 fires. Don't really need to do any, any statistics to look at this. This is showing the difference in weekly physician visits compared to a, a long-term mean and the difference in weekly levels of particulate matter um, in the air, again, compared to a long-term mean. And you can really see quite clearly, although there's some variability, when the, the levels of particulate matter increase, and this was all due to the fires, smoke from the fires, you saw this, this increase in weekly visits to physicians. And this is actually specific for asthma. If you look at actually some other outcome, uh, we looked at, at mental illness uh, type visits, anxiety type visits, so you don't see any, any relationship there. This is the other indicator I, I mentioned to you. This is looking at filled prescriptions for um, inhalers, reliever medication. This is actually taking advantage of something that we have available in Canada as a result of the universal health coverage. We can actually track things like physician visits. So in order for a physician to be paid, they have to submit a, a claim to the system. We can actually tag that to an individual. We can actually do the same thing for filled prescriptions. So we can develop um, these data. And, and this is just aggregated to a local health area, which is just a, a spatial unit. And this is a, a time series of data of about six years. What you can see here, these are summer periods, and these are sort of periods that we nominally estimate a sort of fire season in this region. And actually in most years, there's a drop in the um, prescriptions filled for reliever medication that may have to do with just people moving around and, and doing things that may have to do with infectious uh, diseases. Um, I haven't really thought about that, actually, too much detail. But what you can see is actually there are some events during the summer um, when you get real extremes in these reliever medication uh, prescriptions. There are, there are also extremes outside of the fire season. But pretty much every time that you see actually um, an extreme during that summer period, it was a day 
when um, you had a high level of particulate matter in the air. And again, in these regions, we know quite well that when particulate matter gets, the mean levels are somewhere around 10 or even lower micrograms per cubic meter. When it gets above 25, certainly, so any of these blue lines, this is fire. So really, we're, we're starting to see a signal here that we can actually think about using uh, even for surveillance. And the important thing in this is that this is something that is so sensitive that we can actually pick up signals in very small communities, communities of sort of 10,000 people, for example, where we'd never be able to see an increase uh, in, in the deaths because just the population sizes are so small. Both of those results I just showed you were based on having ground-based air monitoring, which is what we primarily use to, to assess impacts of air quality in, in urban areas. But what we know about forest fires is that often they impact rural areas and smaller communities where there's no monitoring available. So in order to have a complete picture of the system, we need to actually think about ways to go beyond air monitoring. And this is relevant for Canada. It's relevant for British Columbia, which is a place that actually has very dense uh, monitoring. We have some communities in British Columbia, populations less than 5,000 people, where there's a regular air monitoring, which is actually unprecedented in the world. There are many cities in the world, the populations of a million people, where there's no air monitoring. So we actually want to think about tools that are useful for us here, but also are, are applicable um, elsewhere in the world. In fact, the majority of the world where there is no, no air monitoring. Another thing that's important about looking beyond ground-based air monitoring data um, is that monitors actually may not function during extreme episodes. So we have several examples, uh, and I'll show you a few, but um, certainly in the fires that affect uh, Southern California, where, again, a very dense monitoring system, but the monitors all fail during fire events. So they become overloaded, uh, break down, and and even in in very extreme fires, you may lose power, um, for example, so the monitors don't function. It's sort of the worst scenario that your, your system that you're using to tell you about air quality and smoke may not function when you actually need it the most. So in order to mount a public health response, we'd like at least real-time information. Ideally, we even like uh, forecasting um, these events. So we've been using, actually, for a number of years, some remote sensing approaches and sort of seeing how well they can actually predict health responses. So one system that we've used quite a lot, this is something that is actually operational that NOAA puts out called the Hazard Mapping System. And these are actually technician-drawn smoke plumes from seven different remote sensing platforms. So they actually put these sort of two together and uh, twice a day come up with sort of composite smoke plume images for North America. So it's semi-quantitative, but it, it's something that's relatively real-time and is available. Some of the disadvantages are that this is really detecting smoke in the total column. So it's not giving us something at the ground. And depending on the vertical stratification of, of the aerosol in the atmosphere, that may or may not represent well what um, you're, you're experiencing on the ground. Also, we don't get any signal during cloudy days, and it's only available during daytime. So those are some of the limitations uh, when, when we think about applying it. And just to focus a little bit more closely on the area where we're actually seeing all the action, so in these age groups between sort of 20 and 50 years old, really all I want you to take from this is that we're, we're seeing, you know, in general, there's, there's certainly differences in the um, magnitude of the effect 
estimated by each of these different approaches. There's also differences in the uncertainty. So you can see, for example, those, those images, just the, the, the remote sensing images of smoke plumes um, are very uncertain because they're semi-quantitative. But in general, the pattern is, is similar. All of these are showing elevated risks in relation to those physician visits. So we thought about that, and we thought, well, maybe now when we have some smoke forecasting tools, which we do uh, now have, actually, did those predict health response? And if, because really, th- that's what these smoke forecasting tools should be doing if they're going to be useful. So um, fortunately, over the last several years, a large group has sort of brought more or less a U.S. system into Canada and then adapted it to a Canadian, Canadian data sources. This is called Blue Sky, the Blue Sky um, smoke forecasting system. We now have forecasts that are developed up to 60 hours in advance of where smoke will travel throughout western Canada um, and includes sort of northwestern, all the way to northwestern Ontario, the Yukon, Northwest Territories, none of it, and the U.S. border states. It's on a roughly a, a 10 by 10 kilometer um, grid cell. So that's the spatial resolution of the predictions. And they're predicted, we get hourly predictions up to 60 hours in advance for ground level concentrations. So the model performance uh, actually hasn't been evaluated very thoroughly. There's sort of been one evaluation in, in the U.S. So, and this is actually Angela's work, um, who's, who's here today. We thought we should evaluate the model performance based on, on monitoring data and a few other parameters, and then see if we can actually evaluate it based on, on health response. So what we did is sort of use a forecasting tool, but looking back now a couple years, where we can actually collect the health data, see how well, how well it works. If you've just tuned in, this is Dr. Michael Brower, a Canadian-based expert on the impacts of fire smoke, recorded by Radio EcoShock. So now I'm going to move to sort of what about health impacts? How well does this forecasting tool predict health impacts? Um, This is showing 2010, which was a really extreme fire season in British Columbia. These are just the fire counts by size. And I'm going to show you data from one local health area called Local Health Area 27. Why did I pick that? Well, this region is right about here. Um, And it's a region that was closest to sort of where the majority of the fires were. The population of this health region is about 25,000 people. About 10,000 of them live in this community of Williams Lake which is by far the largest community in health region. And this is, this is where it is within British Columbia. And we're sort of right down at the bottom, bottom left corner uh, today. So this is looking at reliever medication prescription counts. So these are, again, counts of filled prescriptions, inhalers for asthmatics or, or individuals with chronic uh, lung disease. And I'm showing you both the monitoring data. So this is a community with, or uh, so these are the monitors in Williams Lake. Uh, Although these counts fill up that whole health region, these are the blue sky predictions. You can see actually a few cases where there's no monitoring data. So guess what? That's when I mentioned that that issue where the monitors malfunction. Here's another example where there there was a monitored value, but we can tell from some parameters in the monitoring data that it, it was probably overloaded. So that's probably an underestimate of the true concentration. These are the blue sky predictions in blue. And then you can see the reliever medication counts uh, as well. So when we see, and, and this is the a long-term mean in the prescription counts, so the baseline. So you can see some fluctuation. These are Sundays, actually, when pharmacies tend to be closed. So quite sort of sensitive. And, and there's probably a bit of a Monday spike after Sunday 
um, in many situations. But when we get these big spikes, they coincide with both the monitored values as well as the predicted values. So this is exactly what we'd like to see, that these pre- this predictions are actually predicting um, health events. So there's that, that situation where that monitor is probably overloaded. And then looking at um, respiratory outpatient visits, so these are visits to physicians for respiratory disease. It's a little bit noisier here. Um, you can see, uh, again, sort of a weekend effect here. So this is not going to an emergency room. This is just going to primarily general practitioners, many of which are closed on weekends. And again, you probably see sort of a Monday bump afterwards. But when we get these sort of extreme peaks, certainly these two, they do coincide fire smoke events as well, and in fact with the predictions from the forecasting system. So if we have a forecasting system that actually seems to predict health impacts, the next thing we'd like to do is actually give some public health guidance. And there's actually a very good document that I helped work on a number of years ago, and I I would say it's really still current, that was put out by the states of California and Washington. So if any of you are interested in sort of public health response, um, there's the link for that. Some of the things that are recommended are room air cleaners. And I just want to show you some data from a study. A number, uh, another one of my students did a number of years ago, um, what Prabhjit Barn did, where we actually chased fires. And, and when we got to a community that was impacted by fire smoke, she found volunteers and she put air cleaners in their homes and measured the levels of particulate matter inside their homes, which is actually where people spend most of their time. So these are concentrations without the air cleaner, and these are concentrations with the air cleaner, both sort of 24-hour measurements. And this is now adjusted for, so this is how much smoke actually infiltrates. So it's adjusted for whatever the outdoor concentration is. You can see that, and these are, again, all homes impacted by fire smoke. So depending on the home, and there's a little bit of air here, but up to sort of 100% of the smoke can infiltrate down to 20-25%, depending on whether they open windows or not, whether they have air conditioning, how tightly the home is sealed just due to its construction. So there's a lot of variability in homes. But in essentially all cases, when you operated this air cleaner, um, you dropped the level of particulate matter indoors. And on average, there's a 65% decrease in indoor fire smoke when you operated one of these uh, air cleaners. And I'll point out these are relatively inexpensive, 100 to 200 dollars they're really not they basically have a pleated paper filter inside and a fan that's so as long as they're sized appropriately for the room essentially it's drawing in dirty air and cleaning out the particulate matter really very effective in terms of reducing the smoke levels we weren't able to measure health impacts in this study because we never knew where the fires were going to be but in a subsequent study in wood-burning communities, so it's a little bit different type of of pollution. It's a more predictable exposure. We did exactly the same kind of study, randomized, actually blinded to the participants, and we saw, again, these decreases in indoor concentrations of particulate matter and also saw improvements in a number of measures of health, so improvements in inflammatory responses, measures of blood vessel function. So it really looks like these filters improve air quality, and you get a health benefit for that. So that's exactly what we'd like to see and what we'd like to recommend to people. Some other things that are, that are recommended are well, air conditioning does a similar thing. Uh, we'd like to see communities, and this has been done in some parts of British Columbia, establish clean air shelters. So communities that are likely to be impacted by forest fire smoke have sort of a smoke response plan. So just like we do in heat events, we have 
cool air shelters, we can have clean air shelters. And it really could be something, any type of structure where there's a heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system where you can put in some level of filtration. Could be a school, could be a shopping mall, it doesn't have to be any, anything fancy. Outdoor workers, people who have to be outdoors, are probably the only population that we'd recommend wearing a respirator. When I first started working on fire smoke, it was in Southeast Asia in this episode that you've heard about in 1997. And everybody was sort of grabbing these air filters. In fact, they de- uh, these respirators, in fact, they depleted the world's supply of them. But um, we saw very clearly that they weren't providing any protection. So you saw babies wearing them and, and the air, you know, air goes through the path of least resistance, which is right around this. I saw people sort of going outside of a building, putting it over like this and then taking it off when they got in their cars, you know, and there's just as much smoke inside their cars. So it's really provides a false sense of security. It was probably doing more harm than good. Very importantly, you can see that that link to medication use. We've seen some examples where pharmacies will actually deplete their supply if they're not prepared. So we'd like to actually see pharmacies be prepared in terms of having enough medication. Individuals before fire season, actually meeting with their healthcare practitioners to sort of set up a plan, making sure they have enough medication so we don't have to see a rush to the physician actually during an event, which is actually when we want people probably to be staying inside or staying in protected area, especially if you're imagining someone with chronic lung disease, even exerting themselves is really a, a challenge. And then in, in the more extreme situations, evacuation. And, and I think uh, Mike mentioned earlier that um, evacuations are sort of often we evacuate people because of smoke. It's very expensive. We have communities where we actually fly in Hercules transports and fly out the whole community. Certainly, we'd like to know from forecasting whether we should do that or not. But ideally, we'd like to avoid that and only use that as a last resort. So really trying to combine all this information with the forecast, we can, I think, give better advice. So um, I will end there, and if there's time, take a question or two. Thank you. That was Dr. Michael Brower at the AAAS meeting. I'm Alex Smith. Find more links to this program in our show blog. Our website is ecoshock.org. Tune in next week for our next big adventure into the future on Radio EcoShock. <laughs>